Australians are the world's second largest consumers of textiles, but the average person only wears 40% of the clothes in their closet. I know this sounds so familiar to me. And it also feels completely overwhelming. But don't bury your head in the sand because there is plenty you can do to become more savvy when it comes to what you buy and even if you buy. Today, we're going to take a closer look at how a pair of jeans comes to hang in your closet to clue you in on what you should be looking for when you head to the shops. It's a journey that will see us travel the world and touch all different lives too On the, in that process. I'm Ed Starr and you're with That's Helpful. And this is the latest episode in our Insider series where we're digging deep into the industries whose businesses lie in our minds and bodies. Maxine Vadat is the founder and director of fashion industry Think and Do Tank, New Standard Institute, and the author of Unravel, The Life and Death of a Garment. Maxine, why did you choose to focus on a pair of jeans in particular in your book? Well, I focused on a pair of jeans because I think it's the most ubiquitous garment that we all have. Normally, I'm wearing jeans on any given day, and it cuts across socioeconomic, gender, everybody is wearing jeans. And I think it was also interesting because it is something that used to be so associated with Americana, um, and now it has Mm. become a real global commodity. And then I think also because it's made out of cotton, and now there is plenty of synthetics mixed into it, that it was a great jumping off point to kind of talk about the history of cotton and uh, just a good product to really symbolize the whole industry. How many countries are involved in making just a pair of jeans in, in particular? Yeah, well, for any particular garment, there are many, many more people in many more countries than people realize, right? Because on the label, it says like made in blah, blah, blah. Um, And that's Mm -hmm. only one country. But in fact, your raw material is going to come from one place, let's say it's cotton or polyester, that raw fiber will go somewhere else to be processed into a fabric and material that can happen in like a different country, let's say China. Um, And then that fabric, which um, has been, you know, spun and woven into the fabric, will go to another country, maybe Bangladesh, to be cut and sewn into a garment. And then it will be sent to wherever it's going to be sold. So it can even kind of break down even into more countries. But it's, it's a very global process, even if the label just names one country at the end of the day. And so one in six people around the world work in the clothing industry and 80% are women. It's just, the facts are just astounding. Yeah, it's really hard to come by um, verified data in this space. So we know that a lot of people work in the space and a lot of those people are women. And I've you know been inside many of these facilities and that 80% figure tends to, tends to bear out in what I see. Um, and it is, it's often kind of, a first place of formal employment for women. And yeah, there's a lot of people profiting at the very, very top um, of the fashion industry. And then there is a lot of people employed that are uh, being really exploited to make all of that profit. So let's 
rewind back a little bit and revisit our pair of jeans, the life cycle that you visited and actually traveled the world tracking and visiting the people whose lives are so intertwined with what we wear. You started in Texas. What What's happening there? And how did you see lives being changed there and then, then the environment being, being impacted by this production process? Yeah. So Texas is the um, largest cotton producing state in the United States. And the United States is the third largest cotton producing um, country globally. I spent time, you know, both like with uh, organic cotton farmers and then conventional cotton farmers. And I, as somebody who is kind of uh, lives in big cities and hasn't spent much time on farms, uh, I really wanted to just understand like why, given the fact that, you know, we're led to believe that organic is so much better for the environment, that it makes more money, that everything is beneficial, like, why hasn't it been adopted so widely? Like, what's wrong with all these farmers? And it was really important, you know, for me to spend that time because I realized a few things. One is, it's so foreign to me to have your income be tied to what the weather is outside. Mm. Really help me understand just why farmers might be more risk averse, why they're not willing to just jump into a whole new way of doing things. Um, and, uh, you know, then I also realized that in order to get the organic standard, the, you know, official standard that is backed by, um, well, in the United States, the U.S. government, it takes a farm three years to have to shift over to organics and they have to demonstrate over three years. Well, in those three years, they don't get the upside of selling at a higher value. And they don't know if after three years, the market is still going to be there to make that switch um, profitable. And then I also just learned that the organic standard itself is not actually directly tied to being climate beneficial, which is what I think most of us, certainly I understood. Um, the organic standard means that no synthetic chemicals have been used in the farming process. So the nuances of the conversation was just um, made very clear by visiting and spending time with both conventional and organic farmers. Yeah, absolutely. And so once you've got the cotton from Texas, <clears throat> then the next stop is China, right? What's happening in China to this cotton? Yeah, so once you've um, kind of the cotton has been grown and it's been um, picked and then um, it's been ginned, which is like the taking little seeds out of the cotton, um, it will be baled up and that those bales are oftentimes sent to China because China is still, by and large, where most of the textiles of the world are produced. The process there is to clean it, um, to comb it, which is, you know, getting it in the same direction, um, and then to spin it into yarn, um, and then from there to either knit it or weave it into a fabric. And all of those, and dye it, of course, and finish it for any finished properties that the fabric might have. And all of that takes enormous amounts of energy. It takes a lot of heat to get um, the dye stuff to affix to the fibers. And it's a very energy intensive process. And then, of course, we're doing it in places like China um, that have a very dirty um, energy grid. And the boilers that they use on site tend to be coal boilers. Um, and so it's the reason why 
this part, the textile mill, is responsible for over 75% of the carbon footprint of our clothing is actually just the energy intensiveness of the textile um, production phase. So that's what's happening um, in China. And then there's further concern in China, isn't there, because um, of how these dyes and these chemicals are then disposed of once they're used. Yes. So if you spend any time in a textile producing um, city, um, you will see that the rivers are all varying levels of black. Um, And I went in the book, I um, went with a local environmentalist in China, which is quite a dangerous job for for um, for that individual. And um, why is it dangerous? Because of what they're exposing themselves to, or because people are opposed to their um, what they're doing. Oh yeah, it's dangerous because the government um, doesn't want a bad story out about China. So wow, <laughs> yeah, um, that's why it's dangerous. Um, um, but you know, he was pointing to this river, and he's like, "Oh, this is a this is a river we cleaned up," and I was like what? This is black and like hurts my eyes and burns my throat. Like this is clean. Um, And then he showed me on kind of the Chinese version of Google Maps, um, you could actually see the black waterways coming from that start in the like area where um, these textile facilities are. And it's just this like black water that then goes out into the ocean and you can see it's all still black. Um, and you can see it all the way from like a Google equivalent of Google earth. That's pretty insane. Yeah. Your facial expression. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's because these, um, um, some of the facilities there that are, you know, not being closely watched are just dumping all of the chemicals that they're using back into the local rivers and when I was there it was just crazy because um I was walking along um the river and this was actually kind of scary for me too um I was a little concerned that people were watching um but I was walking along the banks of this river and there were like agricultural plots along the river using this water um and uh yeah it's not good (laughs) Geez, so just like terribly dangerous and scary from start to finish. And so when uh, the cotton from Texas has been taken to China, it's been dyed, dealt with all these chemicals, you know, ruined all the rivers there. (laughs) What happens next to this um, dyed fabric? Sure. So this is like now we have like a big bolt of fabric and that will get uh, shipped to a place that it will be cut and sewn into a garment. I saw some cut and sew facilities in China, in Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka. These production lines are overseen by industrial engineers. And so what that means is everybody's movements are like timed to the second so that this orchestra of production works and there aren't gaps. But basically what it means is that people are being operated as machines. And I think that was something I hadn't considered um, before actually spending time in these facilities and speaking to the women um, in their homes afterwards of just how mentally degrading that is to be treated like a machine. Because um, I remember, you know, I, I asked one of the workers, like, 
what do you think about when you're on your job? And I just, you know, assumed that like they were railing against the man or I don't know what they were thinking of. And she like just responded in a really confused way. Like, what do you mean? What am I thinking about? Um, and I, you know, I have this story in the book, but, um, you know, she said like after there was some back and forth with the translator, this is in Bangladesh. The woman said to me, like, I, I just think like, go faster. Don't make a mistake. Go faster. Don't make a mistake. Go faster. Don't make a mistake. Like there's not mental time or space to like be thinking, um, at all. And, uh, that seemed very dehumanizing. And then just going into the research, like that industrial engineering actually got its start um, in the cotton fields in American South during the time of slavery. Like that mechanized labor got its start there and we just keep using it um, in the garment production and then again at the Amazon distribution facilities as well. It's the same approach. Wow. It's very, very depressing. We're all going to get to the bit where you can do something about this soon. Yes, exactly. Stay (laughs) stick with it. There's much to be done. Jeez. And so you often talk about how this is all fueled by neoliberalism. What is neoliberalism in its most basic forms and how is that fueling this whole cycle? Yes, that's a great question. So neoliberal capitalism is this thing that came out of the University of Chicago um, kind of in the in the 50s. And it was this idea that companies should exist like just to maximize profit. And it's funny because like growing up, right, we're young enough that that was just always like, of course, that's what companies are supposed to do. What else yeah. would they be there for? <laughs> um, and it's yeah, uh, my my background is in law. And so I, you know, I actually, um, I remember um, in corporations uh, learning actually that the origin of the corporate form, so the origin of the of companies was actually a, a means to pool together capital for public works projects like bridges and trains and hospitals. Um, and it's only been much more recently this idea that the company is only there to maximize profit and is only there for shareholders gains. Um, And so that's the basic idea of neoliberal capitalism, which is why we've kind of all just been raised like, like that's the air we breathe. Like, of course, (laughs) Mm. Um, I certainly was. Yeah. Um, Yeah. The critique of the book is ultimately kind of a critique of that approach. Like we can have capitalism and have the the sort of success that capitalism, you know, in in many ways has wrought. But we need to have like basic guardrails for that capitalism. Um, And that's sort of the kind of the broader thrust of the book is, um, is we've gone, you know, we've gone too far on this neoliberal capitalism idea. um, And that we can just be a little bit more measured um, and understand the environmental and social costs that we've that haven't been priced in that have been ignored in um in this system yeah exactly and also you know those ideas that were created when the world wasn't as global when it wasn't mm-hmm. as easy to send this pair of jeans around the world and exploit yep. so many bloody people it's absolutely wild and so we have just covered like the production of the pair of jeans in very high level there's so much more to it but um 
there is also this terrible um, other side of the pair of jeans is when we throw it away. Yeah. What happens then? <laughs> what happens to these textiles to the pair of jeans when we throw it away? Yeah, so that's another like hidden part of the of the story of jeans. Um, and I just want to just to round out on the on the process of getting the clothing made on the the uh, another just thing that I need to get out there is that the apparel industry is responsible between anywhere from four to ten percent of global greenhouse gas emissions. Even on the low end, even that 4%, that's more than France, Germany, and the United Kingdom combined. So it's just, it's this um, hugely um, climate impactful industry, and it hasn't gotten that attention it deserves in, in sort of climate, pure climate circles. But now we can get back to what happens when we're when we're done with our clothing. Uh, in the United States, I have the data on that, but I hazard a guess it's not dissimilar in Australia. For the most part, we're throwing away our uh, used clothing. And when that happens, depending on where you live, um, you're either sending that clothing to a landfill or the whatever local Department of Sanitation will burn it for energy. Neither of them are good options. But then, of course, we've been trained like you donate your clothes. Um, and that is supposed to be this like good thing that we can feel good about. But what's actually happening there is that by and large, very little of it is being kind of resold, like actually at the spot of donation. 94% of the stuff that was being donated was not sold there. The stuff that doesn't get sold is repackaged and then sold to like textile quotes recyclers. Um, And there's like a series of middle companies basically that will sort that product out into various streams. Um, like some will go to rags. Um, some will be um, repackaged for resale somewhere else. Um, some will go to um, landfill at that stage. Um, and then what's ultimately happening, though, um, and that's kind of where mm, the end of the journey of the pair of jeans is it will end up somewhere in the global south. And what's happening there is just the volume, again, is so high that there isn't a home for those goods anywhere. Um, And they're not able to find a seller for the goods that are coming into places like um, Ghana or Chile. I'd be curious where in Australia. I think they there was a big big expose on the ABC, and I think they send it to also to Ghana. Because uh, people were really shocked. They didn't know that that was what was happening when they sent their clothes to the charity shops. It was actually going to these huge landfills in Ghana and then completely not only ruining the environment, but ruining their economy too. Yeah, it's it's a complicated picture on the economy front. But, you know, when you go to these, you know, big secondhand cities, basically, um, and markets, there is clothing on the street, there's clothing in the oceans, there's cost to throwing it out. So there's like illegal burning of the um, of the clothing. What was it like being there and physically seeing this, you know, just like sea and land of clothing? It was honestly really stressful. I mean, I did my research in the same steps that the book, you know, the same steps of a pair of jeans. And so I had just, you know, gone around the world just seeing how much, how many hands are touching these products, how much energy, how much resources are going to making the thing. And then just to see like clothing, you know, still 
with tags on it, like in the landfill and just like seeing how it like goes everywhere. Um, it, yeah, it was just very stressful and just made it like clear, like we're putting all of these resources into making these things only for it to just like literally go up in flames. Um, you know, and impacting the local communities there in really negative ways. So, um, yeah, not great. But there's things we can do. So let's not depress people. Yes. Yeah. No, much. let's not. Let's, let's, let's not. One of the things, though, I find so depressing is when you go to those stores that buy the things that, like, the big department stores or the big stores can't sell. And you see racks and racks and racks of this polyester clothing. And you think, no, like, there's been no thought that's gone into this design, no thought into yep. how it's processed, no thought into how it fits, no thought into who's going to buy it or whether people are actually going to enjoy it. And there's just these racks and yep. racks and racks of crappy polyester clothing. At, oh, it, I can't go into those stores anymore because it's just so depressing. Yeah, and they're it's putting out, like, depressing. the best of what they have, by the way. <laughs> like, you're not even seeing oh my the stuff they're not putting out on the floor. You're joking. So this is all hugely depressing, but we're going to take you back up now. Yes. Don't worry, we've got you. And that's the whole point of this is because you have to come on this journey with us so that when you look at those pair, that pair of jeans in the shop, you actually understand what's going on because I know I don't. I have no clue. And, you know, when you see a pair of jeans for $20, your response should not be, oh, great, I can get two pairs. It should be, holy crap, that's so depressing and we should not have any part in that. <laughs> so when... When we get there, you know, and and we realize that I think like listening to this podcast is a big part of things because actually acknowledging yep. the impact of the how this clothing is created and what's going into this fast fashion. What can we do? Because it's actually really hard to figure out what is ethical and what is sustainably yep. made, right? Yeah, it's really hard because companies don't have to disclose. There's a ton of greenwashing in the space. I think the last thing that I want is for us to feel um, like guilty to the point, like it's very, a very natural psychological reaction would be like, well, that's crappy. I'm not going to think about that. And I'm that's gonna go what I do, day. which is so bad. And I, I like, this is part of my like thing too, because I know that I would just avoid it. I'd just be like, well, I can't see that. Yeah. But you know, here's the, thing. the worst thing to do. Yeah, but here's okay, the thing. On. Ready? Yeah. This is an invitation to actually love the clothing that you wear. And so much okay. of what we buy, and I've spent tons of time, not just on my, in my own internal work, but speaking to other, you know, a lot, a lot of other women shoppers, like we do not have like a super happy relationship with our wardrobes, right? It's overwhelming. No. We don't feel like we have something to, anything to wear. It, like the stuff doesn't look good on us, we think, and I think to recognize just like we are bombarded with so many messages to buy, 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 buy. And it is seen as like um, an easy psychological hit to like otherwise deal with our stressful lives. Um, and as a result, like we are laden with stuff that we actually don't really love. Um, and mm -hmm. so I think if we like set aside what the companies are claiming or whatever, wherever you get the thing, if you really love the piece invest in that piece you if you really love it you're gonna wear it more um and i i think that so many shoppers actually because we've been now trained in this system 
um, that we don't know our own bodies. We don't know kind of what really looks good on us. So I think spending that time in our in our wardrobes to really understand like what are the pieces I'm actually wearing and why, and then being connected more with that, um, you're going to be less likely to be um, kind of bamboozled by marketing messages. Um, so just on that alone, um, and listen, like, don't feel guilty on where it comes from. Like, the, the thing that you can do to address, like, the systemic issues is wear the clothing more as a consumer. You can also help change laws, which we can get to. But, um, but that is a much more, like, empowered way of approaching it rather than feeling guilted or judgy or any of those things. Like, that's not going to help us get to the place where we need to go and just just recognize like this is a massive industry. It's, it's two industries, right? It's the fashion industry, which is a two and a half trillion dollar industry. And it's the technology industry that is backed by the fashion industry that is using algorithms to get us to buy more stuff. Um, and so I think just appreciating the situation that we find ourselves in um, and letting that not, you know, let this be an invitation to really like love the things you wear, invest in them, appreciate them. Um, and that will slow down the consumption and, you know, let us focus our attention on the things that are really meaningful. I just let out a massive exhale there because that feels like something I can do. And I'm sure that feels like something other people can do. You know, we're not going to have, I was worried you were going to say, well, you've got to go and you've got to look for this thing in the label and you can't shop here and it's going to cost you way more money. But I think, you know, actually thinking about what we're buying and do you have any tips on like slowing down that impulsivity? Mm -hmm. Because that is what this feeds on, right? Like this, I need, I want, I've got to get it. Oh, screw it. I'll just get it. It only costs X amount of dollars. Like that's a big thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I spoke to a bunch of psychologists actually about this. Um, And it's interesting because most of the research that they've done is on food. Um, But it was interesting to like make these connections with them as, you know, as I was doing these interviews. And basically, like if you think about um, healthy eating and you speak to the, the psychologist researching this space, um, or any habit, um, what you do is you have to make it easy to do and make the, the behavior that you don't want harder. Um, and so, for example, there's research like if you drive by a McDonald's every single day, um, you're more likely, if it's on your route, to stop there because it happens to be on your route. If you select a different route that doesn't have you drive by said McDonald's, you're going you're less likely to eat there just because the cue isn't put in your brain like, oh, McDonald's, that sounds good. Um, And the same is with fashion, with fashion. So what I've done in my own um, navigation of this space is like I used to get a lot of emails from fashion companies. So I unsubscribed Mm -hmm. to all of those. So I don't have the clues in my inbox like, ooh, sale. Um, And likewise with like Instagram and TikTok, like unfollowing, I mean, Instagram, TikTok is hard because there's an algorithm Um, uh, and Instagram is trying to do the same thing. So like delete the entire app is really the Mm -hmm. best thing to do Um, and, and, you know, take a break from and and recognize that these are companies that are profiting from your mind share because that's what they are doing. Um, and, and unsubscribe. So you're not getting, you know, the, from the influencers who are like 
giving you the cues to buy the thing all the time. Um, and that is enormously helpful, actually, because you're just less likely in your day um, to be, to like have that urge. And then the other thing that I do is I um, have a very like <laughs> intricate Pinterest board. And so like if I have found myself like doing some online digging, I pin it to a private Pinterest page so I can be like, I will leave this there and then I can revisit. And if I still like that thing and I still think it fits a need that I don't already have and it's like actually expanding my wardrobe in a significant, meaningful way, then I know like I'm being like it's a thoughtful choice as opposed to just like I had a bad day. Like this is on sale. Mm, absolutely <laughs> but I do like that it feels very empowering and like we can actually make a difference yes. so then beyond ourselves how can we help to make this shift happen elsewhere like what can we do to make broader change in the world yeah so I think what's important to know is like there are legislative efforts that are taking place like we do not have to live in this world. <laughs> um, yeah. and, um, and there is legislation that is, um, uh, that is being advanced that we can help support and give voice to, um, less familiar with what's happening in Australia on that front. Um, but certainly in the United States and in the EU, um, and you can, work with your representatives and introduce pieces of legislation. And it doesn't have to be like if on a federal level, um, you know, things are moving slowly, you can introduce like within um, a state like Western Australia, where I used to live. <laughs> um, um, and and so there there are these efforts that are taking place. Um, one um, just as an example is the in New York, there's the Fashion Act. Um, which would require companies that are selling in the, in the state of New York, and New York is like the 10th largest economy around the world if it were a country, um, wow. so it's big. Um, it would require any major fashion company that is selling there to um, operate in sustainable ways, essentially. It would re require them to reduce their carbon emissions in line with the Paris Agreement. It re would require them to manage their chemicals so we don't have black rivers. Um, it would require that their um, the garment workers in their supply chain are at least paid their uh, legal wages, um, which is not the average case in, the, um, in this industry. And that is how we've regulated other industries. Um, you know, we've we see more electric cars on the road because California passed a fuel efficiency standard and um, and sort of um, sparked innovation and, and investment in that space. So there really are um, there's like extended producer responsibility. There are laws about um, that would require companies to pay into a fund for every um, product that they sell, so that um, it can help fund the recycling. Um, innovations in the space. So there are things that can be done that are really at a systems level. And I think what our generation like needs to learn, you know, the ones that have grown up with the sort of neoliberal capitalism where like we were taught that the most important thing, our most important role 
in society was buying stuff, is to know that our most important role in society is asking our legislators to legislate for a world we want to live in. Um, and that you don't have to be some like tree hugger to do that. <laughs> um, you know, because um, I think, you know, I felt like, oh, that's not my role or like, that's what environmentalists do. Um, but we all have to be um, environmentalists. And it doesn't mean that we're perfect consumers. We're all human, right? Like it doesn't, I s still have fast fashion products in my wardrobe. Like you don't, we're all going to be imperfect people being human um, as we demand our governments um, create the rules of the game for the planet to actually thrive. I think that's like yeah. the the bigger message. <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate that. And it's this I giving up on this idea of per perfection yep. too, right? The idea that, oh, we have to be the p perfect consumer for it to make any difference yep. at all, when actually you can make these really conscious, intentional steps and just be a bit more thoughtful about the way that you live. And that can make a huge, huge difference and a huge impact, yep, right? Absolutely. And, and like, let's stretch ourselves. Let's, you know, I feel like there's so much like, climate anxiety and just general anxiety about the state of the world, we can channel that in like to really meaningful work and participation. It doesn't have to be your full-time job like it is for me, but, you know, join in on, on different campaigns to call or post things um, so that the, the level of this um, is elevated and, and it eventually changes. And that is how this has always worked. It's how, you know, we've addressed cigarette smoking in the past. Um, these things are highly addressable. Um, we just have to know that they're within our power to do something. Oh, so good. I feel so much better. You know, when you've <laughs> been like, oh, uh, just like hiding away from something for so long. <laughs> and now after speaking to you, I feel like there's actually things I can be doing. So I'm so grateful to you. Thank oh, you so much, Maxine. It's been fantastic. And so, so interesting. I've had my eyes opened, not just to the terrible things, but to the brilliant things that we can oh, do too. So I'm you. very grateful. Thank you. And if I could just give um, a plug in terms of what people can do um, beyond reading listening to this yeah, great yeah. podcast um, and reading the book <laughs> Unraveled is um, the New Standard Institute where I work now. Um, we have a on our social account is NSI Fashion 2030. And we provide a lot of just like accessible content on how the system works and sort of what people can do to address it. So it's not something we have to, you know, you don't have to get a PhD all in, in one day. Um, and we try to make it funny too. So... <laughs> we love that we love that amazing i'll pop a link in the show Thank notes you. so everybody can find you guys a lot easier maxime Badat is the founder and director of the fashion industry think and do tank new standard institute and the author of unraveled the life and death of a garment i'll pop the links to where you can find maxine and the new standard institute in the show notes because you you should be following this like this is a constant thing this is the on-ramp we've opened up the door come with us <laughs> It's going to be good. I am the worst of, at this and I, re I really want to get better with you guys. So let's do this journey together. Uh, and I'll pop a link into Maxine's book too because we really just touched the tip of the iceberg there when it comes to those stories, which are absolutely fascinating. I know a lot of you guys, we identify as feminists. This is definitely a feminist issue. Women are being exploited around the world and we can do something about this. Like, come on board. If you're enjoying the show, I really appreciate it if you could leave me a review wherever you're listening. It genuinely helps. I'm Ed Stott and I sincerely hope that's helpful.